Well, in our study last week, I introduced our theme of the week by sharing some thoughts about legacy and, and our heritage of faith. And I shared some stories and, and different things about my family, about some other families, about some friends. Uh, but I challenged you then, and I want to challenge you again today, to not allow a lack of family legacy to deter you from the life that God has called you to live for him. Don't, don't allow this lack of legacy to be a situation where, oh, I can't, I can't be that person because I don't have this great family heritage. That's not the way we need to look at it. We need to look at it as my legacy, my Christian heritage can begin with me. The Bible clearly teaches that the way that you live today will have an impact on your children and on generations to come. Now, here's the bad part about that. It will have an impact, either good or bad. It will impact one way or the other. Listen to what the Lord has to say to the children of Israel in the law of Moses. Exodus chapter 20, when, when God is giving them the Ten Commandments, He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers, or another word for iniquity is just sin. So visiting the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what do we learn from that? If we choose to live a life characterized by sin, if we choose to live a life that is self-serving, that we're always doing what we want to do, it will impact our future generations. The Lord says to the third and the fourth generations. In other words, my, not only my children, but my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren will be impacted by the poor decisions that I make. But... To the thousands, it says, of those who love me and keep my commandments. If I will choose to live a life that honors God, that brings glory to God, where I put him first in everything that I do, it will not just impact my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, but it will go on generation after generation after generation. We find that in Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. But you know what? We also find that in Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 5, as well as Jeremiah 32. And if there's anything that I know about understanding the Bible is when it shows up multiple times in this book, you really ought to pay close attention to it. You know, there are a lot of things that are in this book uh, that, that are taught and, and they're only mentioned one time and people really just jump on board and that becomes their whole theology, everything they want to talk about, that one little thing. Let's, let's major on the things that the Bible majors on. And this is one of those. What will our Christian legacy be? Now to clarify, the Lord does not hold you accountable for the sins of your children, nor does he hold your children accountable for your sins. Deuteronomy 24 verse 16 says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. It's not that we don't have to pay for the penalty of sin, you know, according to the law, which we are thankful that we don't live by the law, but we're, we live by grace. It wasn't that we have to pay for the sins of our fathers or the children pay for the sins of their fathers. But it is the fact that the life of the mother and father impacts 
the children. If you get nothing else this morning, realize your life has an impact on your children. Consider what the prophet Ezekiel said. He said, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So we don't have to worry about that. Our goal then is to live a life that will positively impact our family, right? But can I just pause again and say this? Because I think this is really important. We have no guarantee as to how our children will turn out. Your children may be great. And you had nothing to do with it. <laughs> or your children might be living for themselves, living for the devil. And that's not the heritage you passed on to them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Have you heard of a, a king named Josiah in the Old Testament? One of the greatest kings of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah that, that they ever had. Uh, he came, became king at eight years old. And about 10 years later, you know, as an older teenager, they decided to renovate the temple. And they found the scroll of the Lord in the temple. And he said, we need to read this and find out how we were living. And he heard this and he realized the way they were living was bad. And they needed to change their ways. And so he did. One of the greatest kings that Judah had. His son, King Jehoahaz, was worthless. He was worthless. Let's flip that script, though. Have you heard of a king named King Ahaz? Probably one of the worst kings. And yet his son, King Hezekiah, was one of the best. What am I saying here? We should strive to be the most authentic follower of Jesus Christ that we can possibly be in order to set an example for our children and our children's children. But we have no guarantee as to how our children will turn out. That's why we pray so much the older we get. Amen? <laughs> well... In our passage today from Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be uh, observing the ways in which these heroes of the faith live their lives. And we're going to be considering some individuals from the antediluvian period of history. And you say, what? What is that? Antediluvian is just a big theological term uh, think of it this way, because probably some of you are familiar with antebellum homes, right? What does that mean? Those are homes that were built before the Civil War. Did you know that? Yeah, I see a lot of heads nodding. All right, antediluvian uh, was a time period in history that was before antediluvian, the deluge, or the flood. So when we talk about antediluvian era or a period of time, we're talking about those, that, those years that took place before the flood when Noah built the ark and God destroyed mankind for this, their sins. And so this, this antediluvian period uh, lasted for about 1,656 years. I've provided you with a chart, and if you actually want that, it is in the version. Uh, notes and you can you can save that onto your phone or whatever but the flood took place around 2348 BC and if you look in Genesis chapter 5 and you add up all the years of the people and how long they lived and and all of that what you discover is that creation according to uh, the the folks in in Kentucky that are have the ark encounter and the the uh, 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 
Creation Museum, thank you, whoever said that. Uh, they estimate this as the beginning of time being about 4004 BC, or another way of looking at it, 4,000 years before the birth of Christ. So um, the interesting thing about this section of scripture that talks about this antediluvian period, which is Genesis chapters 1 through 5, here in these chapters, it doesn't just give us all the good stories of the good people that lived and all the good things that happened, but it also gave us the stories about all the people who chose to live their life in ways that were ugly and embarrassing. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you once again to look at Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be considering verses 4 through 7 this morning as we study. And the three men that are mentioned in this passage are part of this family that started with Adam and Eve and then went to their son Abel who was replaced by Seth. We're going to get to all that in just a moment. But it also is talking about another family. Uh, we're going to be able to contrast these three men with men from a different family, a different line of Adam and Eve's family. And that family line was a rebellious family. In each case, legacy and heritage played a role in the ultimate outcome of what happened in each of these families. So I want to invite you to read with me from Hebrews chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 4, reading through verse 7. The Bible says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, this morning, like I said a moment ago, I want to spend our time comparing and contrasting this faithful family with this rebellious family. And we'll start in the first generation of this family, which was Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve had their firstborn son, whose name was Cain, and then their second child was born, his name was Abel. And we're going to talk more about them in just a moment. But Abel died unexpectedly. If you know the story, you know what happened. We'll talk about it in a minute. But when he died unexpectedly, God allowed Eve to bear another son, and his name was Seth. And Seth took the place of his brother Abel, um, as we'll read in the text in just a moment. So that was the first generation of this family. In the second generation, then, we have uh, Cain's family and Seth's family. Because, as we said, Abel died young and did not have a family of his own. So Cain's family legacy is encapsulated in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But everything about his family in this antediluvian period is covered in just eight verses in Genesis chapter 4. However, Seth's family is described in much greater detail, and we find that in Genesis chapter 5. And so that's the second generation. 
And then it lists out all the other generations that follow down to the seventh generation. You see, we find in the seventh generation that Cain had a descendant named Lamech and Seth had a de descendant named Enoch. Now, if we were to read all of those passages today in Genesis chapters 4 and 5, uh, you would probably notice that the names Lamech and Enoch are actually mentioned on both sides of each family line. There are two Lamechs and there are two Enochs. You see, Cain's Enoch was the third generation from Adam, while Seth's Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. And then Seth's Lamech was the ninth generation from Adam, and Cain's Lamech was the seventh generation from Adam. Is that clear completely? You got it? So here's the point. As you're reading through there and you see one Lamech mentioned and then another Lamech mentioned, they're not the same people. They're separated by generations. When you see one Enoch mentioned and then another Enoch mentioned, you just need to realize that these are separate families. Just like in my family, I have a Caleb, but my cousin Debbie also has a Caleb. Um, and so, you know, which Caleb are we talking about? Well, it, you know, when there's separation, it's not a problem. But when we're all together in a family reunion, it, it can be a little confusing. Not as confusing as my sister being Jana and my wife Joanna. That's caused me confusion for years. But um, yes, so you understand, all right? Two Lamechs, two Enochs. So that's the seventh generation from Adam. And we're going to talk about Lamech and Enoch in just a few minutes. And then, if you go a few more generations down in this antediluvian period, you come to the tenth generation of uh, Seth's family, and you find this guy named Noah, which we just read about in Hebrews 11, verse 7. He's the 10th generation from Seth. And then, you know, so who are we going to compare or contrast him with? Well, unfortunately, there is no one else worth mentioning in Cain's family to compare him with. And so we'll just compare him to the rest of the people on earth that were up to no good. Now, I'm pointing out each of these generations in which these individuals are born primarily because I want to be able to compare between this faithful family and this rebellious family and see how from generation one to generation two, how that, that impacted them, but then see how vastly they divert from there based on the impact of their ancestors. So as we examine each of these, what I want you to do today, because this isn't just about a history lesson, uh, you know, genealogies are not the most compelling thing for us to study in Scripture, but I think there is, there's profit here and there's power here when we think about these in relationship to our own legacy, our own Christian heritage. The question is, is do you have one? Do you have a Christian heritage? If you do, thank God for that. If you don't, what are you going to do to make a difference for your future generations? If you have one, then I encourage you to take a deep close look at how it has impacted your life and thank God for that. If you don't, think about what you can do to impact the future. So as we look at these two different families, let's look first of all at Abel's heart of faith and Cain's uh, heart of rebellion. Abel's heart of faith and Cain's Heart of rebellion. We find this passage in Genesis chapter 4, and I, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. You might keep a finger in Hebrews 11, and we'll be going back and forth between Genesis 4, 5, and 6, and Hebrews 11 most of the morning. Um, 
But the first thing that I need to notice here is what happens that shows the character of each of these men. Because uh, we say here, Abel had a heart of faith and Cain had a heart of rebellion. How do we know that? Why do we draw that conclusion? Well, let's look at verses, Genesis 2, verses 2 through 5. And we're going to look at the characteristics of the offerings that are given to the Lord by both Cain and Abel. So if you have your Bible, read with me from Genesis 4, beginning in verse 2. In the middle of that verse, it says, Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So we... <laughs> oh, that's funny. Sorry, I just had something pop in my mind. If you've ever seen the musical Oklahoma, we've got the, the farmer and the cowman. Um, and if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But if you don't, then just never mind. All right. So Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, it says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So there are several things that we need to understand from this passage. And I'll just be honest with you. I, I haven't always understood what this passage was saying and why God had regard for one and not the other. And so I'm hoping to, to make that clear to you this morning. You see, the type of offering that was given, one was an offering of animal sacrifice, and the other was an offering of grain sacrifice. But I don't think that that is the big issue here. It is an issue, but it's not the biggest issue. It's not that Abel gave the right kind of sacrifice or right type of sacrifice and Cain gave the wrong one. But I think it goes deeper <coughs> than that. And the reason I think that is, you see, later on, God directs his children to offer both types of sacrifices when he gives them the law in the book of Exodus and then reiterates the law in the book of Deuteronomy, do you know what Deuteronomy means? Deuteronomos is literally the second giving of the law. Okay, So Deuteronomy is the second time he gave it. Why did he have to do it again? Do you remember? Well, the ones he gave, gave it to in Exodus chapter 20, they all died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And so all these... New uh, adults had never heard it because they were children or not born yet when it, when it was first given. So God had to give it <coughs> to them again. Now, we don't have any information at this point in Scripture because we're only, you know, in my Bible, we're only four pages into the Bible here. You know, in Genesis chapter 4, we don't have any information yet that's going to help us to determine um, what type of offering God wanted them to give all we know for sure is that they they seem to understand what God was wanting um, they would have obviously known the circumstances of Adam and Eve's offering when they sinned against God and there was an animal sacrifice so so there is that aspect there of they they had some understanding of offering and what God was wanting um, it just seems from reading verse 7 that Cain should have known what was expected of him. In verse 7 it says, God said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you'll do what I said, won't you be accepted? So I think Cain should have known. But again, I don't think the type of offering is the biggest issue here. So what is different between the, the two descriptions of the offerings that we have? Well... Abel's, uh, sorry, notice, notice the description. The description of Cain's offering was that it was of the fruit of the ground. And the, the description of Abel's offering was that it was the firstborn of his flock. 
So what's significant about this? What was wrong with Cain's offering? Well, see, rather than giving of the first fruit of his harvest, it says that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. He did not bring an offering of the first fruits. He brought the leftovers. He did not put God first in this act of worship. He gave what was left. You see, Cain's response revealed the condition of his heart. (coughs) Whereas Abel, he gave the first. He gave the firstborn of his flock. So let's look at the character of this faith. Abel's faith was characterized by right behavior and right attitude. He did what he was supposed to do and he did it with the right attitude. And folks, when seeking to obey God's will, you must do it in response to and according to a word from God. In other words, when we're seeking to obey God, we must do it according to his word. This is our guidebook for how to live life. And that's what Abel did. He obeyed God, not only in his behavior, but in his attitude. Now Cain's faith, honestly, here seems to be non-existent. His offering was what? He wanted to give to God. Not what what God expected, but what he wanted to give. His offering was of the fruit of the ground. He gave what was left over of his harvest, disregarding God's instructions. And when God confronted him about it, how did Cain respond? We read it just a moment ago, didn't we? No, we didn't. We stopped reading in uh, verse 5. Read verse 6. It says, God said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And notice in verse 8. Hold it. Oh, let's keep reading. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so how did Cain respond to God confronting him about that? It says that Cain went and spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. He was so angry that he decided that he needed to kill his brother. Ultimately, folks, when God confronted Cain about this, his response was to get angry. His response was to get defensive. The problem with Cain's offering and the, was the same problem with Cain's response to the Lord. And to the Lord not accepting it. And that problem was a heart problem. Plain and simply. You see beyond anger. He responded by going to talk to his brother. But he had plotted his revenge against his brother. When they got out into the field. He rose up against him and killed his brother. And then after killing his brother. Cain acted like he knew nothing about it. When the Lord confronted him. He denied knowing anything. The problem, Cain's problem, was a heart problem. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this account account that can impact our lives? Well, first of all, when it comes to worship, the right attitude is essential for worship. Abel's heart was right. He, He offered God the first fruits, Cain's was not he offered God the leftovers so the right attitude is essential but secondly it's also important to adhere to the right method Abel gave the offering that God wanted with the right attitude Cain gave the offering that he wanted with a bad 
attitude. You know, Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? We must worship the Lord with the right attitude and according to God's truth in the right way. That's what that means. And so each of these men started their legacy by their attitude and actions in this life. Unfortunately, Abel's life was cut short. And so God provided Adam and Eve with an additional son, Seth, who would then take his uh, brother's place. And we find that in chapter 4, verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So let's look at their descendants now. Let's look for a moment at Cain's and Seth's descendants. We said earlier that we're going to jump from that first to second generation and then down to the seventh generation. Let's look at Enoch's walk in faith and Lamech's walk in revenge. You see, Lamech imitated his ancestor Cain, but frankly, he was much worse even than Cain. We find here in Genesis chapter 4, the, from 17 to 24, we find the description of Cain's family and who, uh, who was the father of who and all of that good stuff. But when we get down to verse 23, we find that the seventh generation from Adam, this man named Lamech, said to his wives, bragging to his wives, he said these words in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say, he said. He said, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He knew about his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain, and what Cain had done to his brother Abel. And he, he relished it. He, he rejoiced in it. He thought that was great because Cain had gotten revenge. <clears throat> but he said, I've killed a man for merely striking me. He hit me, so I took his life. And he's bragging about it. You see, his reaction was blown out of proportion, which revealed his heart. It was a heart that was unfortunately similar to his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And I don't know if I'm getting the right number of greats in there or not. That was his walk. It was a walk in revenge. But Enoch's walk was a walk in faith. It was entirely different. We find in Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, a description about Enoch. This is in the middle of the, the description of Seth's family. And we come to the seventh generation, just like Lamech, seventh generation. Now we're, we're talking about Seth's family, seven generations from Adam. And it says in verse 21, <clears throat> when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Notice verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Now Enoch did not live as long as some of uh, his other relatives in fact, if you recognize the name Methuselah, you know that that's the person who lived the longest time in recorded biblical history. But his 300 plus years were given to righteous living in the midst of a terribly evil antediluvian world. And that world was about to be destroyed. We're in Genesis 5. 
The flood comes at the end of Genesis 6. And so here's this man, Enoch, who is walking with God, walking in faith. If you look at the little bitty book at the back of the Bible, just before Revelation, the book called Jude, only one chapter in that book, but in Jude verse 14 and 15, it says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that, the, that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what do we learn here in Jude about this man named Enoch? Well, those 300 years that he was walking with God, he was also prophesying for God. Telling them that the way that they were living was evil and ungodly. Enoch's claim to fame, though, is that he did not die. If you read Genesis chapter 5, you will notice that every generation that was mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, it says that he lived X number of years, then he had a child, and then he lived X number of years after that child, having other sons and daughters, and then he died. Over and over, generation two, generation three, generation four, generation five and six. But when it came to generation seven, it did not say he died. It said he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. There's always a point in the way that scripture is written. And the point is, is all of these others died, and let's see the difference here with this man, Enoch. You see, Enoch walked with God, and God took him because of his relationship with God. Hebrews 11 verse 5 explains it beautifully, because it says that he was taken up because of his faith and because he pleased God. It gives us two reasons there in verse 5. He was taken because of his faith and because he pleased God. You see, folks, faith and pleasing God are the opposite sides of the same coin. So we need to think about both of those. We must have faith, but we must also live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Dr. Kent Hughes wrote this in regard to to Enoch and his life and, and this, this metaphor of walking with God. He said the metaphor of walking more exactly reveals how Enoch pleased God. Walking with another person suggests a mutual agreement of soul. As the prophet Amos understood when he asked, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Amos 3.3. 3. It is impossible to walk together unless there are several mutual agreements. To begin with, he said, you must agree on the destination. You cannot walk somewhere with someone unless you're going to the same place, right? So you must agree on the destination. Enoch was heading in God's direction. Now, of course, it's quite possible, he says, to be headed in the same direction, but on separate paths. But again, two cannot walk together unless they have the same destination and they're following the same path. There's one other requirement, he goes on to say, in walking together. Two must not only be traveling to the same place on the same path, but they must also go at the same pace. Going to the same place, on the same path, at the same pace. In other words, Enoch was in step with God. And we too must keep in step with God and his spirit, as Galatians 5.25 tells us. We must keep in step with the spirit. And so the result of Enoch's walk with God traveling to the same place on the same path at the same pace, 
was that one day God just decided to take him on to glory. I've actually heard preachers refer to this as saying, well, one day Enoch and God had been walking so far and so long that they looked back and Enoch realized how far it was to get back home and God said, oh, don't worry about that, just come on and be with me. <laughs> That's conjecture, but you know, it's a beautiful picture. Warren Wiersbe described it this way. He said, Enoch had been walking with God for so many years that his transfer to heaven was not even an interruption. He was walking with the Lord, so he just kept walking. What an amazing demonstration of what it means to live by faith. Started by his ancestor Seth. Passed down through the generations <coughs> to the seventh generation of Enoch. And now let's look at that tenth generation of Noah. Noah's obedience in faith. Well, if we stay here in Genesis chapter 4, 5, and 6, chapter 5 ends by telling us, uh, that Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's an approximation. But then it goes on in verse 5 of chapter 6, and it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. Take a moment and grasp how Scripture describes the heart of mankind at this point in time, at this point in history. History's been going on now for, you know, over 1,600 years, or uh, we'll say over 1,500 years at this point, and God looks down, and everyone other than Noah that... We'll find out in a moment. Everyone, the intentions of their thoughts, the thoughts in their hearts were only evil all the time. And so the Lord saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great. Oh, verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, there was only one person that found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that's because Noah was walking in obedience to the Lord and walking, living his life in, in faith. If you know the story of Noah and the ark, God at age 500 asked Noah to build a large boat that would contain all the animals on the face of the earth, have a, a male and a female, and he built it, and do you remember how long it took him to build it? 100 years. Because he was 500 when God told him to do it, and he was 600 before he actually stepped inside the ark. Now, if you look back at chapter 5, you see here um, in Genesis 5, starting in verse 25, we find the first of Enoch's uh, offspring, Methuselah. It says, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 102 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. And from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Here's what I want you to notice. If you do the math here, Methuselah, who was Lamech, Seth's descendant, not Cain's descendant, Methuselah actually outlived his son, Lamech, by five years. If you, if you do the math, you'll see it's by five years. Because you see, Lamech gave birth to Noah, and he lived for the first 595 years of Noah's life. Methuselah lived five years longer. Why did Methuselah die? Have you thought about it? What happened in the 600th year of Noah's life? The flood. The flood. How was the world described? No one other than Noah was living by faith at that point in time. When he was 500 years old, no one else, that meant his father and his grandfather were not. They were not living according to the faith that had been passed on to them from their father. 95 years later, Noah had been building this enormous edifice out in the middle of a desert. And he said, water's going to fall from the sky, which it had never happened before. I wonder. I wonder if Lamech and Methuselah were part of that group that were making fun of Noah and telling him he was crazy for what he was doing. Folks, it's hard to live your life by faith. I've never had to do this, but I can only imagine that it must be even harder to live your life by faith if your parents and your grandparents choose to do otherwise. But Noah did it. And God judged his parents and his grandparents. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, tells us that Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household and all living animals on the face of the earth when he did this it says by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith well, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice I skipped verse 6. Because I'll just be frank with you folks, I think verse 6 is the verse that we're going to be talking about for several weeks to come. And so I want to close this morning by talking about verse 6. Every time we find in Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us a bit of story about somebody it tells us, by faith, Abel did this. By faith, Enoch did this. By faith, Noah did this. Next week, Pastor David's going to preach about how, by faith, Abraham did this, 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 and this. <laughs> and it goes on from there, talking about Moses and then many others. Every time it talks about how they did these amazing things because of faith, and they did it in faith. Verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see, there is a necessity of faith in order for us to live a life 
that pleases God. So how do we do that? How do we live by faith day by day? Do you need to go build a boat? No. Although, um, <laughs> Caleb, we could have used a boat last night, couldn't we? Uh, long story, I'll tell you later. Um, you know, what, is, what does it mean for us today in 2024 to live by faith? Verse 6 gives us some instruction. God's always faithful to tell us not just what we need to do, but also how we need to do it. For whoever, it says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How do we live by faith? We believe that God exists. We trust in his son as our savior. We seek to live our life for him. Not looking at the things on the earth, but looking toward things above. Trusting in the inheritance that God is going to give us someday when we go to be with him. I doubt that any of us are going to be like Enoch or Elijah and just be taken up to be with God. But someday we will have that inheritance. In the meantime, God is challenging us to live by faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Are you drawing near to God on a day-to-day -day basis? That's what it says here. Hebrews 11 verse 6, it says, draw near and believe. And believe that he has rewards for you, plans for you. He has a purpose for you. What is that purpose? How are you going to demonstrate a life of faith right now? And what legacy are you going to leave to those who come behind you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to, to study your word and to hear the accounts of these events. And Father, help them to challenge us to live our lives by faith. If for no other reason, Lord, help us to take these lives of, of Cain and his descendants as cautionary tales for how we ought not live. So, Lord, if there's anyone here today that's living a life that is not pleasing to you, I just pray, Father, that during this, this time of invitation that they would lay their life down at your feet, that they would submit themselves to your will and start living for you today. Lord, if there are any here that do not know you as, your, as their Savior, I just pray that they would start their journey of faith today. Lord, convict their spirit uh, with your spirit and help them to see their need for salvation. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.